Take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the book of James. James chapter 2, we're going to look this morning at that passage of Scripture beginning in verse 14 and going down through verse 26. The topic is Christian faith in action. I suppose probably this would be classified as the classic passage, the watershed passage in all of the New Testament that deals with our faith finding expression in our everyday life and what we do. Beginning in verse 14, James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works, show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the devils believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not Rahab also. Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Lord, I pray that you would open our understanding this morning to this text. And how this text is pointing out that if we're genuinely saved, changed from the inside out by your grace, we can't help but see the outworking of that in our lives and what we do. Teach us your word. And again, as I prayed earlier, give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to the church. For we pray this in the wonderful name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In his book, Turning Toward Integrity, Dr. David Jeremiah speaks of the monumental survey conducted by James Patterson and and Peter Kim, which resulted in the book by, by the title of The Day America Told the Truth. Now, in that book, they surveyed the American people about many issues, including the relevance of religion in their daily lives. In a chapter which dealt with the relevance of religion, here's what they wrote. 
They said, what is going on in congregations, parishes, and synagogues across America? The, new, the news is good. The news is bad. God is alive and very well, but right now in America, fewer people than ever before are listening to what God has to say to them. 90% of the people we questioned said that they truly believe in God. It would be the logical conclusion then to think that God is a meaningful factor in today's America. But we reached a different conclusion when we dug deeper with our questions. In every single region of the country, when we asked how people make up their minds on issues of right and wrong, we found that they simply do not turn to God or religion to help them decide about the seminal or moral issues of the day. For most people, religion plays virtually no role whatsoever in shaping their opinions on a long list of important public questions. And this is true even for questions that seem closely related to faith. Things like birth control, abortion, same-sex relationships, and teaching about creationism and, and evolution. On not one of those questions did a majority of people seek the guidance of religion in finding answers. They went on to say only one, only one American in five ever consults a minister. Half of us haven't been to a religious service for a minimum of three months. One in three haven't been to a religious service in over a year. Only one in ten of us believes the Ten Commandments. Folks, what a sad state of affairs. We need to be reminded what James said back in James chapter 1, that we are to be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving ourselves. James mentions that true faith perseveres in trials. It obeys the word of God. It practices pure and undefiled religion. It shows impartiality. It controls the tongue. It puts God first in one's planning. And it hates pride and worldliness. In other words, true saving faith will transform and shape our lives. Folks, the very nature of the new birth is that it changes us on the inside so that our faith will be seen inevitably on the outside. Dr. Chuck Swindoll says it well. He says the kind of faith James is speaking of here is like calories. You can't see calories, but you can look at your waistline and see their result. Yes, it's, it's true. Works of righteousness will be evident in, in varying degrees in a believer's life. They'll be true in varying degrees based upon a person's maturity in the Lord. But nonetheless, works of righteousness should be seen 
in some degree by any believer. Just as a rose bush produces rose blooms and a dogwood produces dogwood blooms, true faith will produce righteousness. James' point is that if you have the real thing, works will be the fruit of it. If good works are not the fruit of it, then you don't have the real thing. The whole book of James is summed up in this passage. And it points out that neither faith nor works is worth anything without the other. Now the context of the passage, James is dealing with a situation in the church in which people evidently thought that they could profess faith with their lips, but it didn't mean anything in their daily lives. And what James is using here in this passage is a literary device known as diatribe. In diatribe, what you do is you set up an imaginary figure. You set up a straw man, and then that straw man embodies all of the arguments that you are trying to counter and attack. And you attack the arguments one by one. You destroy the arguments, and by destroying the straw man, you also deal with the people in your audience who have those same ideas. Diatribe. And that's what James is using here. And he's showing that if we profess to know Christ, there's got to be evidence of it in our lives to back up the claim. First of all, this morning I want you to see with me the suspicion of a faith without fruit. The suspicion of a faith without fruit. And you'll notice that James gives, there's four statements that we can use to summarize what he's teaching here in verses 14 to 20. And the first phrase that he uses to further explain what he means is that faith without fruit does not save. Faith without fruit does not save. Folks, here's where we need to clarify something. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Make no mistake about that. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. And so it seems like James and Paul are maybe contradicting one another, but they're not. You see, ladies and gentlemen, James and Paul are dealing with two separate issues. In passages like Ephesians chapter 2, what the Apostle Paul is doing is addressing the root of our faith. The root of our Christian lives. Again, we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. You can't add anything to that. As Paul said in the book of Galatians, if you try to add anything to to faith in Christ, it is not the gospel. It is a false gospel. We don't add anything to Jesus. 
Now what James is doing is he's flipping the coin of salvation over and he's looking at the outworking of salvation in our lives and he's simply pointing out that a real genuine faith will show itself by by the fruit of it. So Paul deals with the root, James here is dealing with the fruit. They're not contradicting one another, they're just dealing with separate issues. Now, if you're reading the King James Version, nothing wrong with the King James Version. Beautiful translation, but the way verse 14 of James 2 is translated has helped. It's helped to bring about some of the confusion. You see, for some reason, the King James Version translators chose not to put the article in front of the word faith. And so the King James Version reads, can faith save him? Now the question in James is assuming a negative answer. And yet in the rest of the Bible, the answer is yes. The misunderstanding is completely cleared up when we understand that there is, in the Greek text, there's the definite article in front of faith. And so it should read, can that faith save him? In other words, can that faith that is nothing more than mere words, can that kind of faith save anybody? And the obvious answer to that question is no. Faith that is fruitless cannot save. It cannot take you to heaven any more than good works without faith can. Faith without works is useless. And we can turn it around and also say that works without faith is useless. James is saying exactly what Jesus taught on at at least two different occasions. In John chapter 15 verse 8, Jesus said, You are to go and bear fruit and so prove to be my disciples. You will prove to be the genuine thing if you go and bear fruit. And then of course that passage in Matthew chapter 7 beginning in verse 16, Jesus said, You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles are they. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many mighty miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness." So James is saying the very same thing Jesus was saying. A genuine profession of faith had better be backed up by a life that demonstrates it. A second statement. Faith without fruit does not serve. 
Look at verse 15 and 16. James says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? And so to point out how suspicious such faith is to save, James illustrates by pointing out that it doesn't even serve down-to-earth human needs right now. James gives the illustration of a brother or sister in need, which, by the way, was a very common occurrence in the early church. Because in the early church, especially around Jerusalem in a, in a Jewish-type community, when a person came to faith in Jesus Christ, their, their Jewish family would disown them. Their Jewish boss would fire them. They would end up destitute. Sometimes they were killed. They suffered martyrdom. Again, people would end up in desperate need back then because being fired and also because of the way the economy was set up. By and large, the economy was operated by, by day laborers. You would go and work in fields or in the market all day long for somebody and then at the end of the day they would pay you your wages. Well, in chapter 5 James addresses the situation of rich landowners who would hire people to, to work their farms all day long, uh, work out in the fields by the sweat of their brow. They'd get to the end of the day and the wealthy landowner would not pay them. You see, the day laborers would take their daily pay. They'd go to the market. They would buy the necessities for their family. If, the, if you weren't paid, you didn't have sustenance that day. And so your children would go to bed hungry that night. And again, this is something that was not all that uncommon. And so the situation James mentions here is where somebody knocks on your door and they happen to be that person who is destitute and, and in need. And James shocks everybody. It's like he has a member of the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem to answer the door. And the church member doesn't want to get involved. He doesn't want to help. But he says... Go in peace. In the Greek text, it's, it's worse than that, though. There's almost a sanctimonious insult in it. He said, the, the, the person says, I'm not going to help, but go in peace. Be warm. I hope you will be warm to the point of being cozy. And I hope you will find food to the point of being stuffed. That's the sense of, of what James says here now the words may be from good intentions but nonetheless the words are meaningless to the person in need 
But folks, it demonstrates that oftentimes when there are needs, we think we can just say something, only say something, and and it's going to help the situation, and we're going to relieve our conscience by by saying something, right? Somebody has some need in their life, and and we we tell them, we empathize with them or whatever, and, and, you know, let me know if I can help in some way. We do absolutely nothing, and we say, you know what? I'm I'm guilt-free. I've said all the right things to them. You know, we might hear at Christmas time, of somebody's house burning down and we say something to them they've they've lost everything and we say hey let us know if you need anything well of course they need something they need everything and by our words we think that that we were sympathetic we were empathetic we were compassionate we were understanding But again, our words, words alone, did that person no good whatsoever. And James is saying that kind of faith is not New Testament Christianity. The story is told of a European queen several centuries ago who loved to go to the theater and watch plays. She had her coachman drive her there. She went inside, left him uh, in the carriage, and she went inside and she wept throughout the play because there were so many tragic figures in the play suffering destitution and various things. She sat there and wept and then she went out at the end of the play back to her carriage and she found her coachman dead. He had frozen to death. And she had no tears for him. She could shed tears in a play with fictional characters but she had no tears tears to shed for a real person right in front of her eyes and James says folks that is not Christianity third statement he makes faith without fruit is deceived look at verse 18 he says but someone will say you have faith and I have works show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works here's the person that says says Oh, James, you know, come on. You've got your gift. I've got my gift. We're all different. You be a faith-type Christian. I'll be a works-type Christian. Or I'll be a faith-type Christian. You be a works-type Christian. Either way, you want to work it. But what James wants us to understand is that when it comes to faith, genuine faith, you can't have your version of it and I have my version of it. It doesn't work that way. Regardless of what your gift is, regardless of what your strengths and weaknesses are, James is pointing out faith without fruit is futile and it's deceived. James says, go ahead, put your faith without works on display. We'll see how futile it is. You've never done anything to further the kingdom of God with that type of faith. And then we'll lay my faith down alongside of yours. And I'll show you how my faith has altered my life. Now, what's interesting is the way that James reverses what we would expect. I want you to notice what he does. You would expect the objector to be the one to say, you have works, I have faith. 
After all, that's the way James has been setting this whole argument up. But James has the objector say, I have works, you have faith. And by reversing the expectation there, James makes his point all the more emphatically. His point is... It doesn't matter what you claim, whether it is faith without works or works without faith. If you separate the two, you are deceived. The only legitimate faith in the sight of God is a faith that works. And to show you how deeply deception can be, James in verse 19 uses the example of Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6, beginning in verse 4, is what is known as the Shema, the greatest confession of faith that the Jews used. Every time they went to the synagogue, they recited it. The synagogue or the temple. In all of their services, they would recite the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. The Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, soul, and strength. Again, the Jews recite this all the time. When we just recite something... If we're not careful, it can become meaningless. Now, folks, there's nothing wrong with reciting things. Many of our Christian brothers all over the world this morning, our brothers and sisters, as part of their worship services, they are reciting various creeds. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. You read those creeds and there is powerful theology in those creeds. Now Baptists have always said no creed but the Bible. But, but some church leaders today are admonishing even, even churches that don't use creeds. They're admonishing us to use them periodically in our worship services because they are such great summaries of our faith. And their point is we live in such a biblically illiterate age People don't even understand the basic big rock doctrines that show up in the creeds. And so as we say the creeds in worship and get people to, to memorize those, it will put some of those basic doctrines in their heart. So there's nothing wrong with reciting things. I want to be clear on that. Because after all, Christianity is a confessional faith. Jesus is Lord. We confess that. But what James is saying, if, if that's all your faith is, if you go to the Jewish synagogue and recite the Shema and you leave and it hasn't changed your life one bit, you are deceived, my friend. He says the demons also believe and they shudder. I want you to think about something. There are no demons who are atheist. Every time in the Bible when Jesus encountered demons, what did they say? We know who you are, Jesus. 
You're the son of the most high God. What have you come here to do to us? Have you come to torment us? They knew who Jesus was and they identified him with their confessions. But are the demons saved? Of course not. If all you have to back up your Christianity is the fact that one day, many years ago, you walked an aisle, you made a profession of faith, but that profession of faith has not altered or changed your life one iota, James is saying, you are deceived, my friend. You're deceived. You have nothing more Nothing more going on in your professed Christianity than what demons could participate in. The last statement he makes about this point is faith without fruit does not deliver. Look at verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. It, it, it's dead. It's not a, it's, it's not a living, life-changing thing. It offers the person nothing. It's not able to save. It's like James is saying to his congregation and saying to us, Wake up, folks! Can you not see that? Then secondly, after pointing out the suspicion of a faith without fruit, he points out the strength of a faith that works. Beginning in verse 21, he says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now there's two statements we can make here. Again, he's contrasting, he talked about suspicious faith. Now he's talking about the strength of true faith. And what he's going to say about the strength of true faith is that faith, faith that works is obedient. Verses 21 to 24. And James gives the example of Abraham. Abraham was the hero of all Jews. They looked back to him as the father of their faith. And James mentions here two events out of the life of Abraham. He mentions the event in Genesis 22 and also the event in Genesis 15. Let's take them one at a time. Genesis 15 says, After these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O Lord God, what will thou give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since thou hast given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying this man will not be your heir but one who shall come forth from your own body he shall be your heir and he took him outside and said now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them and he said to him so shall your descendants be now here it comes don't miss this next verse then he that is Abraham believed the Lord 
And the Lord credited it unto him as righteousness. He believed God. And then the watershed event in Abraham's life that tested his faith was what? Genesis 22. Remember what happened in Genesis 22? He was going to sacrifice Isaac. Now, God didn't really want him to sacrifice Isaac. God was only testing Abraham's obedience. And when Abraham proved his obedience and he was about to kill Isaac, God said, stop, don't do that. You've shown me that you love me now above everything else. And Abram turned and and there was a lamb in the thicket and he sacrificed that instead. Those are the two events, Genesis 15, Genesis 22 that James is talking about here. And again, I want you to notice something. James reverses the order. In his passage, he talks first of all about Genesis 22. And then he talks secondly about Genesis 15. The whole point is to show how saving faith will result in works of righteousness. Abraham was declared righteous by God in Genesis 15. And what happened in Genesis 22 with Isaac proved that his faith back in Genesis 15 was the real deal. What happened with Isaac is a demonstration to everybody down through the ages that his faith was real. It wasn't simply words. Abraham was not declared righteous because of his bloodline. He wasn't declared righteous because of some kind of intellectual agreement about the existence of God or because of some empty use of words. Abraham had a real trust in God that God knew about in Genesis 15. Because the Bible says he believed God and God credited unto him as righteousness. God declared his righteousness, his faith back then. And then he had Abraham demonstrate it. Now folks, don't think for a moment that Abraham was perfect. If you think he was perfect, go back and read the Genesis accounts. There was a famine in the land. He didn't trust God. He ran down to Egypt. Usually in the scripture, when the, when the saints ran down to Egypt, it wasn't a good thing. They weren't trusting God. Abraham runs down to Egypt. And then down in Egypt, you remember what he did? He lied about Sarah. He lied. Yeah, it was a white lie, you know, kind of a half-truth. What, what, what's a half-truth and a half-lie? But the point is, the overall testimony of Abraham's life, the overall testimony is that he was a man of faith. And we see that time and time and time again by what he did. I mean, think what he did even initially. 
when God said, leave your father's household and country and go to a land that I'm going to show you, he pulled up stakes. He went not even knowing exactly initially where he was going. He just knew God was going to lead him. He cut ties with everything he was familiar with, with all the comforts in his life that he could strike out and go with God. Who does that? A man of faith. A man of faith. That's what Abraham was. Abraham trusted God even at times to his own hurt. And at times even when it didn't make sense. He demonstrated that his faith was real. And then lastly, I want you to see that faith that works is costly. Look at verse 25. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Now folks, you couldn't have found a bigger contrast to Abraham than that of Rahab. She was a Gentile, Abraham a Jew. He was called the friend of God. She was a prostitute. Now, obviously, she became a repentant prostitute. She was a prostitute. If you're looking for contrasting characters in the Scripture, you, you couldn't get a wider gap than that between Abraham and Rahab. But when the spies came into the land, what did Rahab say? She said, I know that your God is the true God, and I want to be counted among your people. And what'd she do? She hid the spies. Now, folks, had the authorities come to her house and discovered the spies, what would have happened to her? They'd have killed her. She put her life on the line. Hers was a faith that counts. Do you realize there, there are places in the world today, let's, let's bring this down because you say, you know what, that, that's good for way back then. Nothing like that happens today. You sure about that? There are places in the world, some of these Muslim countries where, where Christianity is not allowed. Let's say in one of those countries a Christian family comes, knocks on your door one night and says, the authorities are after me and there stands a woman with her children. The authorities are after me. If they find me, they'll kill me. Will you please hide me? If you hide her and the authorities found her, find her in your house, guess what? She's not going to be the only one to die. You're going to die too. And you've got children too to look after. Are you going to turn her away into the night? Are you going to say, ma'am, I can't take that risk? I've got children depending on me. Go in peace. I hope you find safety. Are you going to do that? Or are you going to welcome her in and hide her and give her refuge? You see what a powerful thing Rahab did? She invited them in and gave them refuge. Illegitimate faith may move the lips. Illegitimate faith may even move your feet to go to church, a church service. But illegitimate faith does not change your life. True faith does. Uh, Paul said, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 
Again, not perfection. All through the Old and New Testament, we see how the saints struggled and stumbled. But they got back up and they kept pressing on. I think of Simon Peter as a good example. You should see some evidence of faith in your life. You should see some fruit. Again, all through the Bible, Noah. Noah built an ark. The New Testament points out the whole entire time he was building that ark, his neighbors were mocking him and persecuting him, but he did it anyway. Abraham, leave your father's country. I mentioned that a moment ago. Moses, raised in Pharaoh's household, had it all. But he chose rather to identify with God's people who were suffering. Matthew, Levi. Jesus walked by, called him. He left his tax collector's booth and followed Jesus. James and John, fishermen in the boat with their dad, Jesus called them. They left their father, the nets, the boat, and they followed Jesus. All through the Bible, both testaments, you see that genuine faith was costly. It was obedient and it was costly. What do we sometimes want to do today? God says, be holy so you can be salt and light. We say, Lord, I don't want to stand out. I'm going to choose rather to blend in. God says, share your faith in Christ with others. We say, Lord, I can't do that. I'm not bold enough to. Somebody else will have to do that. God says, find out what your spiritual gift is and use it in the church to build up the body of Christ. We say, no, no, I don't want to do that. I want to have my freedoms. I don't want to be tied down with serving. Over and over and over again, I fear sometimes some of the things we say and do. And I fear that it might be reflective of illegitimate faith. I've asked you this question before. I ask you again in closing. If you were accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence in a court of law to convict you? What a great testimony it would be if somebody around you, maybe somebody at work or school, found out, they eventually found out you were a Christian, and they said, you know what, that makes perfect sense now. I've I've seen that in you. I've, I've seen a difference. To hear that you're a Christian makes perfect sense. What a great affirmation that would be. If you were accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence in a a court of law to convict you?